Acts is a phenomenal book because Acts tells us of the rapid spread of the Christian movement in the first century from the time of Christ's ascension to basically when Nero began the persecutions of the Christian church, which began in July of 64. And so Acts probably ends at about 61 or so A.D., Paul's in prison, and what it does, as I've shared many times with you, if you go to Acts 1-8, it says, You'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the earth. It tells us how they got to the end of the earth, which is Rome. That's what that means. But an important part of that, in verse 8, it says, You'll receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive it. Don't have it yet. You will receive it. Now, a lot of people get all spin out of shape. Has they received the Holy Spirit yet? Are they saved? All that. None of that matters to us because we all, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. Don't get bogged down in whether the apostles technically had the Holy Spirit or not, as if it's any way, shape, form, or fashion matters to you today because it simply doesn't. I'm just telling you. People ask me that, and I shrug, I don't know. I know, but I just don't feel like talking about it. Verse 4, Jesus. It says there in chapter 1, was gathering together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. He said to wait for what the Father had promised. Jesus told his apostles, wait, the Father promised something. Wait. Which he said, you heard from me, that is Jesus. For John baptized with water, but you will be, you will be, future passive, you will be, it's a guarantee. Baptized, immersed, not sprinkled, not dipped, immersed. With the Holy Spirit, when? Not many days from now. Hang on. It's coming. So we go to chapter 2. This is a pivotal event in the life of the church. Because in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit of God comes in an abiding or permanent way. The Spirit has always come at times. In the gospel, there are times the Spirit is at work. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was at work. It was the Holy Spirit. They didn't know it because they didn't have a concept of a trinity in the Old Testament. But the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God. It it doesn't change. His Spirit is the Spirit. It's His Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in the gospels. He promised the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16 which I'll talk about in great detail the last Friday night of July, about six months from now when I have a deep fry as a plug, just so you'll know. The Holy Spirit is God with us completely and totally, immersed in our life, saving us, flushing out the sin, redeeming us, sanctifying us, gifting us, leading us. He does all those things, period. All the time. You always have him. If you're a follower of Jesus, you never not have him. If you were part of a religious denomination, Christian denomination, that says you're a Christian, but you have not yet received the Holy Spirit, those two things can't both be true. You ain't saved. You got the Holy Spirit. You come to the book of Acts a couple times, like in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10, like we saw last week, when the Holy Spirit had to come especially upon the Samaritans or upon the Gentiles. It was a unique experience. There are sometimes there are things that happened back then that were a sign that was important that don't happen anymore. Like the Holy Spirit coming to people who didn't quite yet have it. 
That was for the purpose of helping them understand the power of the Spirit and to fulfill the promise that Jesus made in Acts 1-8. But in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes for all practical purposes, for all theological purposes, what matters to us is this is it. Jesus is gone. He ain't coming back till the second coming. The Holy Spirit is here. So we're going to look and see kind of what that means. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. The day of Pentecost had come. Now Pentecost was a huge Jewish festival that occurred 50 days after the Sunday after Passover. And it was a time of a big event. It was a celebration of the, of the spring harvest. The Feast of Tabernacles, which I think I mentioned last Sunday. I can't remember if it was last Sunday or Sunday before last. I don't remember the things I preached to you Sunday. I forget them Sunday night. I don't remember because I'm on to the next message. But the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated, excuse me, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the uh, fall harvest. This is the Feast of the Pentecost of Weeks. It also commemorated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. I'm not going to go into all the details of that. Pentecost was a huge celebration. Normally, if you were journeyed, every adult male was expected once in his life to journey to Jerusalem for Passover. It's expensive. It took a lot of time off. They didn't have FMLA back then, so it wasn't easy. So they would go, and if you were going to stay for that, you might as well spend the extra seven weeks and stay for Pentecost. That oftentimes happened. So it was a huge three-month trip for a lot of these people to leave, to stay, and to go. They would stay with friends, family. People were just more hospitable back then. I mean, they would open up their homes like a, an Airbnb without the rent and let them stay. I'm so thankful I didn't live back then. I don't want people staying at my house if I can avoid it, except my wife and my dogs. I don't even know why we have spare bedrooms. Seems like a waste of money. Until family showed up, and then I understood why they had spare bedrooms. And it was all together in one place. Now, traditionally, we tend to think of the one place as going back to chapter 1, where they all met in the upper room at Mark's mama's house. It could be, though, that they were actually in the temple, in one of the houses or rooms or large meeting places. See, the temple, remember, they were Jewish still. They were still Jewish believers. I mean, they were, they were Christians, but they, they were still Jewish. They didn't make that distinction. To them, Jesus was the fulfillment of all Judaism. Just like today. Do anybody know any Jewish Christians? They are Messianic Jews or fulfilled Jews. To them, Jesus fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. That's how they looked at it. So going to the temple was natural. And the temple was a huge compound. It wasn't just a temple. I mean, there were rooms. and meeting rooms. It's, it's almost like if you were to go to the convention center. And there's all sorts of things there. If you've ever been to a convention center in a major, major city, you've been to one like in Dallas or Houston or San Antonio or Phoenix, there's stuff everywhere. That's kind of how the temple was. And suddenly they were together praying, and suddenly, verse 2 is critic, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So there was a noise. It sounded like a violent wind. Now, the word Holy Spirit comes from the word holy, akios, which means to be separate or sanctified, and spirit, pneumatos, which means the breath. So it's, it's a breath, a breathing. 
The Holy Spirit is the holy sanctified breath. And, and, and it's like a wind. And here, the, the Holy Spirit coming literally, it seems like a violent rushing sound. A wind. And the whole house was filled. And there appeared to them tongues as of, it looked like fire, distributing themselves. And they rested on each every one of them. So you have this place shaken. And how, you know, it's got Stevie Ray Vaughan song, the house is rocking. Don't bother knocking. I mean, it was just rocking. It was blowing, and the wind was coming. And there was the fire. It looked like fire. The word tongues. And the word tongues is going to be used several times. It comes, here's the word glossa. And, and, and literally, the word tongue means the same thing our word tongue means literally. It means the thing in the mouth, the tongue. It can also mean speech. And I'm going to talk about that a whole lot more in a minute and all that stuff that goes with it. So, but it looked like just tongues of fire. And if you've ever seen a roaring fire, the way the, the fire comes out in the fireplace, it looks like tongues are spitting out everywhere. And then it says this. It rested on every one of them. It's like, touch them. You ever see the Indiana Jones movie, the original, at the end, when they, all the Nazis die, that glorious, brutal death, and that all rests on them? It's like that, except nobody died. And verse 4 says this. And they were all, every one of them, filled completely with the Holy Spirit. All of them. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now here's the question. What does it mean? In verse 4, only deal with verse 4, <coughs> when it says they spoke with other tongues. There's a great deal of debate about speaking in tongues. Now, I'll be honest. When I first started in ministry back in 1980, you know, whatever, you're right, I don't remember, 40, 40 years in August. Can you believe that? 40 years? I can't. You'd have told me when I started in ministry at 7 that 40 years later, you know, how long 40 was, I honestly, I didn't know if, if I lived that long. That seemed like a long time. I was, I was just trying to, I just wanted to get married with Debbie and, and pray the Lord didn't come before I got married, if you know what I mean, kind of thing. So I was just, I didn't, couldn't conceive of that much time. Here it is, 40 years later. So when I first started in ministry, speaking in tongues was an issue. And it still is. And, you know, we had lots of battles about what speaking in tongues means. Because in, in 1 Corinthians, it says they spoke in tongues. And the word there, glossolalia, speaking of tongues, glossa, tongue, lalia, speak. Two Greek words, glossa, tongue, lalia, leo, speak, lalia. I mean, lalia, speak, leo, speak, to speak in tongues. And it means different things. For instance, it simply can mean speaking in another language, period. Some of you can speak Spanish. Some of you can speak German. You speak in another tongue. Uh, sometimes we talk about a person who lies as having a forked tongue. You know, we don't know what that means, but it just happens. But it also can mean a heavenly language. That's what it means in 1 Corinthians 11. I mean, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 12, 13, and 14, in verse four, chapter 14. They spook in a language nobody understands. Now, listen, you can slice it, you can dice it however you want. As, as, and I'm, I'm, I'm a southern, as southern Baptist can be. But I understand what the scriptures teach. I don't let my love to be a Baptist cloud my view and understanding of what the scripture says very often. 
They spoke in unknown languages, period, in story. Now, they, they, there was a whole bunch of things supposed to happen. It was praise language. You know, it was, it was uh, you know, nobody understood it. There was supposed to be an interpreter. I got all that. It was all supposed to happen. People wonder, can they still do that today? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how to tell you this. But I still believe people can speak in unknown languages. It's just they can't hear. <laughs> So if you have that gift, that's good. You, it's your home. You enjoy that gift. But don't you dare enjoy it in this church because, you know, Paul also writes that we don't want chaos to come. So one of the things that we understand from our perspective is it's not necessary for us to carry out the work of the Holy Spirit. Since I know that it's not necessary for us to carry out the work of the Holy Spirit, and I also know that all it would do is cause a whole lot of disunity and problems, Whenever that subject or someone has broached me about that or said something about that, I'm very loving and very kind and saying, if you can do that, praise God, I'm glad for you. Don't ever do it here publicly because all you would do is cause trouble because we don't have an interpreter. So I'm just saying, I, I, listen, I don't care if the church down the street or next door speaks in tongues. Why do you care? I, I don't care what they do. It's not, I'm not their pastor. They have a pastor. They called them, or her, or it, whatever. They called them. I don't care what they do. So why do I care if another church speaks in tongues? Here, though, does it mean ecstatic utterances? A lot will say yes, especially if you're charismatic. But why does it have to mean that? Because the idea simply is they spoke in tongues they didn't understand. So based on what follows, I understand it to mean they started speaking in known languages they didn't know. Now, if I get, when I, if I, when I get to heaven, 30 or 40 years from now, whatever, and I find out I'm wrong, you know what? I'm going to be okay. If God says, hey, no, David, they spoke in ecstatic utterances in Acts 2. You were wrong in your understanding of that. I'm going to like, my bad. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still in heaven, right? Well, yeah, okay. Why? Okay, I was wrong. But most likely, they spoke in languages they didn't know. Why do I say that? Because of what happens in verse 5. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem. No kidding. Devout men from every nation. Why were they all there? They came for Passover, stayed for Pentecost. Do you realize that Jews were all over the world? In fact, in Egypt, it's estimated there were a million Jews living in Egypt in the city of Alexandria that had five quadrants. Don't tell me how you have five quadrants that defies logic. Should be four quadrants, but they had five quadrants because who knows why they had. Probably something the government did. Five quadrants. Yeah. I'm just not in a good mood. Today. I don't know why I'm being so. I don't know. Maybe that's why my wife wouldn't talk to me today. Who knows? Two of those quadrants, two of the five were full of Jews. They were huge. They were Jews all over the world. And a lot of them came there. And so they're full of Jews. They were devout men, godly men who loved the Lord. And they weren't Christians yet. And when this sound occurred, the crowd of believers came out of where they were. I mean, they just filled out. And they were bewildered. Each one of them was hearing them speak in his own Language. And here's the word language there. This is cool. This is where it helps to know Greek. The word here is the word dialectos or dialogue. Does that word sound familiar? You know what dialogue means? It means, it's a rhetorical question, it means 
speaking another language or a type of language or a part of language. It, so, you know, there's different dialogues. In fact, we might say this way. English as it's spoken in America and English as it's spoken in England, sometimes it doesn't sound the same, right? A little difference. Where I come from in South Texas, we speak a little different. We contract words for simplicity like y'all. They ain't got no stuff like that. And they were all here in their own language. This is a miracle. Is it not? I mean, let me tell you, if, if I, I know one language, English. I study three other languages, Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. You know what they all have in common? They're dead languages. That's all I know. If I start speaking to you in anything other than English, and knowing what I made in Latin, that would include Latin. I couldn't speak in Latin. If I spoke in Spanish, French, it'd be a miracle. You would be over, you would just be shocked. It can't happen. It happened. Supernatural. <laughs> and they were, verse 7, amazed and astonished, saying, this is great. Aren't these guys speaking, who are speaking Galileans? You know what it meant to be a Galilean in Jerusalem? It meant you were a hick. You were, you were like, it'd be like someone, someone from, let's just say, Louisiana. Louisiana. Going to New York City and speaking. And they, they would think, we can't, that, that, how do we understand that? Isn't he from Louisiana? And notice what it says in verse, it, it was, how is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? How, how do we hear them in our own language? You know how we hear them? Because the Holy Spirit came upon their life. That's what happens. So here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit comes upon your life, you can do anything the Holy Spirit wants you to do. Anything he wants. You know what you can do? You can share Jesus with your lost co-worker. You can. You, you... You can go to the hospital and visit someone who's sick. You can teach children on Sunday mornings if the Holy Spirit wants you to. And you pass the background check. Remember that part. Got to add that in there. Why would they do The Holy Spirit came. Look, look. Look where they were from. Parthians. And Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. That was folks east, some of them south and the north. Folks from Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. Pontus, Judea was a surrounding Asia area. And Cappadocia, Pontus, and, and Asia, they were, they were up in Turkey. Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt. And the districts of Libya around the Cyrene. And visitors even from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. It was Gentiles who were God-fearers. They're either Christians and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues. 
languages. Speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So what were these guys talking about? They were hearing them talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I didn't say that, no. But if they're going to talk about the mighty deeds of God, what else would that mean but the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because ultimately what we tell people about is the resurrection of Jesus. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? I love verse 13, though. But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine, they're drunk. Now, other Jews had come out, probably from the Jewish leaders, and began to, to talk to them and say, what, what are they doing? They're, they're drunk. That's what's happening. Because their hearts weren't in tune with the work of the Holy Spirit of God. I'm not going to go into all of Peter's sermon, but I just want to point this out. Peter, at this point, is taking a stand with the eleven. Raise his voice and declare to them. And he begins to talk. And he begins to quote from the Old Testament, which they call the Scriptures, to show that Jesus was the Christ. And he begins to tell them all sorts of things. Here's the thing that happened. In verse 31, excuse me, verse 29, and I skipped a whole bunch because I'm not going to talk about that. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn him to oath on, sworn to be with him on an oath to the seed of his descendants on his throne, that somebody would come as descendant to be on the throne. He looked ahead. He looked forward and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. David, not even knowing he was speaking of the resurrection of Christ, Paul says in, in the Psalms, spoke forward to the resurrection of Christ. He was neither Jesus, this is, the Christ, was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer the decay. He was not abandoned to, to death, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Because, he, because of why, verse 32 says this, This Jesus God raised up again, and to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it is not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what do we do? And Peter said this, Repent, and each of you be baptized, following repentance, which speaks of faith, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, or on account of the forgiveness of your sins. And when that happens, what will he said? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises for you and your children who will fall off, far away, for as many as the Lord calls to himself. So here we have. If you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 11, you have the story of the Tower of Babel, where the people of God, 
excuse me, where the people who are not of God were speaking one language and decided to build what was basically a, a tower to their own self to show their own glory. And so God had it with them. And he caused them to speak in unknown tongues, confusing languages, and they scattered. Now, in Acts chapter 2, however many years that is later, God undoes the curse of man, and he allows them all to hear the gospel of Jesus in their own language, because the Holy Spirit came to unite them together. So what we need to understand, not only is the significance of this event, but what it means to us. And it means several things. First of all, here's what it means. As Paul said, once you have repented and have had your sins forgiven, you receive the Holy Spirit. There's no exceptions to that. There's no two-part, three-part process. If someone tells me I haven't yet received the Holy Spirit, I'm going to say, well, either A, you're wrong, or B, you're lost. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. But the second thing that it says to us is that the power of the Holy Spirit abides completely within all of us. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all have the ability to go speak in the languages. I know we, there's a song we talk about, give me, you know, Pentecostal power, all that, and I get it. And preachers that preach, we need, the, we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us like he did at Pentecost. No, we don't. We don't need the Holy Spirit to come upon us as he did at Pentecost. All we need to do is to surrender our lives completely to the Holy Spirit that already dwells within us. He'll take care of the rest. See, that's really the problem. The problem isn't that we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. We do. How do I know that? Because Jesus says, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And then Peter says at the end of his message, all of you who believe, you have the Holy Spirit and the power that comes with it. So you don't get parts of the Holy Spirit. It's not like I got 25% of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we talk about being baptized by the Spirit. That's even mentioned in Scripture. And we'll say, man, we need, we need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't ever use that phrase. But here's what it means. It doesn't mean that we don't have him. It means we need to surrender to the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. All of you are gifted by the Holy Spirit. I don't know what your gifts are. People say, how do I find my gifts? There's two things. What are you good at? What do you like to do? I'm pretty sure if you're good at something and you like to do it, that's it. I said all the time, you can like to do something and not be good at it. Hence, singing. A lot of people really love to sing on the platform. Guess what? They're not very good at it. And that's Brian and Mike's job to tell them that. <laughs> if they don't, I'll say, hey, tell them not very, they're not very good, but don't quote me. Uh, just figure out yourself. You can, you can be good at something and not like it. I am good at detail work. I hate detail work. Well, whatever I have, the Holy Spirit gave it to me. And if he gave it to me, he'll let me use it. He'll help me to use it. 
He'll guide me to use it. I just got to go use it. The problem most of us have, who are fathers of Jesus, isn't that we don't have the Holy Spirit. We haven't come to the point in our life where we say, Holy Spirit, I want you to use me like you did in Acts 2. Now, not speaking in languages, not performing miracles. Just use me like you use them. But if that's what you want, then you have to be prepared for the Holy Spirit to use you. And you can't tell him no. You've got to say yes. And so there you have it. When all heaven broke loose and the Holy Spirit came, if you read on in chapter 2, there's a summation before they go to chapter 3. It says, well, it says, first of all, verse 41, so then those who had received the word were baptized, Peter's message and all the other stuff. And that day there were about 3,000 souls saved. And my footnote says persons, but what we use the term souls because that sounds Baptist. 3,000 in one day. And in verse 47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Our prayer of our church should simply be this. Lord, we would like to see you add to our number day by day. That's it. They don't have to get fancy. They don't have to speak in tongues. You don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have to do anything. But just say, Lord, here's what I want to do. I want to see you add to the number of people who are followers of Christ every day. And my part is this. I'll let the Holy Spirit work in me whatever he tells me to do. You're, you're probably not ever going to come up here and preach. I do that. What he, what he has for you to do may be very simple. may not be all that complicated. But what you do is important. It's always important. Whatever it is, it matters to the kingdom. Or the Holy Spirit wouldn't have given it to you. So do it. And we'll see the Lord add to our number every day, those who are saved. All right. you have any questions other than speaking in tongues? You can ask it, and I'll answer in an unknown language. I'll see you all Sunday.